Hey, for those of you joining us online this past weekend, we had a technical error, but we think that you're important. We want you to hear God's word, and so we're just doing everything we can to make that possible. This is going to be the third installment of the Break Some Rules series. Next week will be the season finale, but we've really enjoyed it. I want to ask you a question. That's this. Have you ever felt stereotyped? Have you ever felt stigmatized? Have you ever felt like somebody didn't even give you the time of day? They just dismissed you? Like maybe they saw the way you looked or the way you dressed. Maybe it was where you're from and all of a sudden they made these snap judgments and like that, they were done with you. Well, Jesus meets a woman in John chapter 4 who tries to do exactly that with him. She tries to write him off. She sees that he's a Jew. She sees that he's a man. And she has all of these assumptions and expectations. She throws up these guards and these barriers. But Jesus, he circumvents them. Jesus gets around them. He takes those walls down. He won't be so easily dissuaded. And that's really been the heart of the Break Some Rules series is that people have these preconceived ideas oftentimes about Jesus, but Jesus, he knows how to get around them. He knows how to take them down. He knows how to shatter stained glass. On my time here in Portland in the last weeks and months, I have taken time to not just be a preacher, but to be a learner and to ask people what some of their ideas of Christianity are. I've gone throughout the city and just asked people, I want your, their total candor, their total honesty. I don't want these fake answers. I just want reality. And it's been interesting what people have told me. I've had people tell me that uh, Christianity is traditional, that it's antiquated, that it's out of touch, that it's restrictive, regressive, dull, dry, bland, and boring. But if that's the impression you have about Christianity... I've come here to tell you that you've been had. You've been played. You've been fooled. Now, you might be watching this on the internet, and you may consider yourself a skeptic. And and if you are watching this, and I kind of just say that, that we're glad that you're taking the time out of your day, out of your schedule, to just check something out that maybe you're not comfortable with, maybe, you know, isn't a typical part of your life. Maybe a friend sent you this podcast. I'm just so honored that you're watching it. But you may not believe in the Bible. You may not believe in a literal devil. But it's possible that even still you've been fooled by him. I've told you for three weeks now that the word devil actually means slanderer. It means slanderer. And a slanderer's goal is to ruin your reputation. Well, the Bible tells us that sometimes the best way to ruin our reputation is to pretend to be one of us. 2 Corinthians 11 says that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. And that we shouldn't be surprised if servants of the devil pretend to be preachers of righteousness. See, he's a master of espionage, of counterintelligence. He likes to put out the misinformation. Satan's game isn't mainly to get you to drink, to get you to sleep around. He knows you'll do all those things yourself. Satan's main goal 
is to get you to hate God. And one way he can make people hate God is to get those who claim to love him to act nothing like him. So maybe you have the misinformation. To use last week's illustration, maybe you've been catfished. You've been duped. But you're watching this podcast so that your perception can be flipped. So that the game can be changed. Because the Jesus that I know, he's nothing like that. He's nothing like all the bad experiences and and the boring, bland, restrictive, regressive. No, he flows with life. With life that is really life. And he fills you with purpose. He renews you. He changes you. And that's precisely what he does for this woman. Would you look with me in the Gospel of John, chapter 4, starting in verse 3. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How are you asking me for a drink? For the Jews do not associate with Samaritans. But Jesus answered her and said, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You've got nothing to draw with and the wells deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us water from the well and drank it himself and gave it to his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and I won't have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, you're right when you say you don't have a husband. The fact is you've had five and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time's coming where you, will neither worship, where you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time's coming, and now has come, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they're the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Lord, I believe that you transcend time and space, and that you 
have appointed our times, our dwelling places that you uh, on purpose made us live in 2015 and, and a day with broadband and, and LTE and data and, and, and smartphones and everything, Lord. And I pray that you would speak now even to people who are watching this, who are downloading it, people who are thirsty, that they'd hear exactly what you want to say and that their perceptions, their walls would be brought down. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I titled my message this week, Liquid Purpose. Liquid Purpose. You could say it's a different kind of cocktail. Because Jesus, his life flows with this tremendous purpose. His life is just, just dripping with, with so much meaning, significance. Every encounter is packed with a mission. There's never anything dull, never anything mundane, not even for a moment. And what you don't see in the Gospels is you don't see Jesus as this creepy guy going around fastidiously holding to rituals, just waiting for anybody to step out of line, to pounce on any infraction and, and point people out for how they broke a ritual, how they didn't keep some rule. No. In fact, you see the exact opposite. You see Jesus as a man on a mission who isn't too concerned with policies or form or function. He's like the James Bond of the Bible. He keeps to his mission at all costs. You could say that Jesus, he had a reason to live for, not just rules to live by. And no statement brings this across more clearly than the phrase we saw at the beginning of this chapter, where he says, Jesus had to go to Samaria. See, that phrase doesn't mean much to us in 2015 in the United States. But to the original hearers, that phrase would have been filled with racial tension, with cultural barriers, with convention, with bigotry, with all of this weird social taboos. And that's why we're going to say that this stream of water, this liquid purpose, this living water that Jesus gives, it's broader than we might realize. It's broader then we might realize. You might have noticed, if you're reading along, that in verse 9 it says, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The Greek actually means they don't use anything after a Samaritan. To make it vivid in your mind, and, and maybe this actually is like a sensitive place for you because it's not so long ago in our country's history, you could say, that Samaritans and Jews had to use two different drinking fountains. That they had a different bathroom for Samaritans. Samaritans were half-breeds. They were mongrels. They were this, this mixed race, mixed religious mutts. Because when the Assyrians came down, they, they intermingled the Assyrians, the Babylonians, with the Jewish people, and, and that's what the Samaritans were. And yet Jesus is perfectly fine being seen with the Samaritan woman, even though Jews, Samaritans didn't associate. And it's so juxtaposed with what we would see in, in chapter 3, where Nicodemus, this big religious guy, this big scholar who knew all the rules, who knew all the rituals, says he came to Jesus by night. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus 
in the daylight. But Jesus doesn't care. He drops a little John 3.16 bomb on that guy. Oh my gosh, he didn't know what he was in for. And yet here he is in broad daylight saying, you know what? I don't care who sees me. I don't care what people think about me. I don't care about policies. I don't care about rules. I care about people. Isn't religion always like Nicodemus, though? Isn't it always about appearances, about who you're seen with, about who's up and who, who, who you're next to? You know, you don't want to be next to the people who are going to give you those religious cooties. Isn't that really just like what all of human ego and human civilization is about? Who's an insider? Who's an outsider? Who are you wearing? Who are you rolling with? Who's up in your snap? Who's on your feed? Who do you follow? Who follows you? Jesus cuts out all that crap. He's willing to be seen with this woman. He's willing to associate with sinners. Maybe you're watching this and you feel like you are a Samaritan. You feel like you are an outsider. You feel like the black sheep of the family, the bad apple, the the rogue wave. Maybe you feel shunned. Maybe you feel cut off. You need to know that Jesus, he'd be willing to have a drink with you. Jesus, he wouldn't care what people thought. He'd be willing to make a trip specifically down to Samaria to share his lunch hour with you. But it wasn't just that she was uh, Samaritan. She emphasizes that she was a Samaritan woman. And later on in verse 27, the disciples are going to roll up and it's going gonna, it's gonna to say about them that they marveled to see him Speaking with a woman. It's interesting to me that Christianity has sometimes been portrayed as as a chauvinistic faith. That it's been something conveyed as, as something that holds women down, that's regressive, that's repressive like we talked about earlier. But I would say, how about get in a time machine? How about turn back the clock and see what's really going on here? Because in Jesus' day, The rabbis, Jesus was a rabbi, the rabbis didn't do what Jesus did. In fact, their rabbinical writings, not the Bible, but their their commentaries on the Bible said things like this. He who talks with a woman in public brings a curse upon himself. They said you couldn't even say hi to a woman in public. In fact, they'd go so far as to say, let the law be burned rather than taught to a woman. Yet here's Jesus The rabbi, he's teaching this woman. Well, you may think, oh yeah, well that's the religious world. Of course they held women down. Of course, it wasn't any better in the secular world. In fact, it was much worse. Homer, you probably know Homer, not Simpson. Okay, not that guy. But the other Homer, the original Homer, he wrote about Telemachus telling his mother off, saying, speech shall be for men, mother. Plutarch said that men kept their wives under lock and key. And worst of all, in Jesus' day, there was something called partia potestas, which was a law that said that the patriarch of the home had the right to beat and even execute his wives and children without a trial. Caesar Augustus ratified that law. Yet against that backdrop, here we find Jesus speaking with a woman. Here we find Paul the Apostle, who's also been sometimes considered to be, oh, the chauvinist. Paul writes this. In the day of Patia Potestas, 
Paul writes in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In a day when men had the right to take their wives' lives, Paul writes and says that husbands should give their life for their wife. There's a sociologist named Albert Schmidt. He's from Illinois, PhDs, the whole shebang. He writes and says, The history of women turned at the birth of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. I know that there's been Christians who've mistreated women in the name of God. And if that's happened to you and you're watching this, can I just, from, as a man and as a Christian, can I say from the bottom of my heart how, how disturbed, how grieved, how heartbroken I am? buy that. But in the same breath, can I also say that just because somebody does something in somebody's name doesn't necessarily mean you should blame the name. Uh, recently, I got spammed on Facebook. It happens to me like all the time where my name gets tagged onto some weird, creepy thing about selling jerseys or footwear or like even worse stuff like porn and weird things. And it's like, oh my gosh, I don't want my name anywhere near that. Get my name off there. Block, 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 spam, right? It's like, Take that off. Hey, I would hope that you wouldn't unfriend me just because my name got tagged on something that I want nothing to do with. And just because somebody does something in God's name doesn't mean you should unfriend him either. Jesus exalts women. Jesus ennobles women. Jesus values women. And more than that, Jesus fills his followers with liquid purpose. He fills them with passion. He sends them out on a mission. And it was Christians who three centuries later, a Nicene Christian who became emperor, who ended Partia Potestas. It was Christians on a mission who ended Chinese foot binding, who ended dowry killing in India, bride burning, polygamy, child brides. And we live in this day and age where people They take for granted the benefits of Christianity and then they reject Christ. See, the reason why we live in this society where every individual has human rights, where every individual has value, that's because of the influence of Christ on the world. And yet Western civilization, here we stand, sawing off the branch that we're standing upon. And as the influence of Jesus is diminished in the West, we're going to see that injustice is always on the rise. I had written this entire message out, and as I was finished with the message, I was like, I'm going to go get some coffee. And so I wandered from my office over to this place, this great spot here in Portland called the Pie Spot. It's just a perfect name. Pie, coffee, it's fantastic. I go in there, and I find the Portland Mercury, and the cover story is... Hey, ladies, and it's an entire article on sexual harassment in the streets of Portland, which is considered one of the most unchristianized cities in the United States. It talks about how 57% of women have been verbally harassed in Portland and 41% report to have been flashed and groped in the streets. Can I just say that if you want to be a feminist and you want to exalt women and you want to ennoble women and you want women to rise up, that the, I, the best way to do that isn't like having more sex clubs. 
And it's not having more porn shops and, and living in the strippiest city in America and having more prostitution and more public nudity. Can I just say that that's not the way to do it? But at the same time, can I tell you that if you've been in one of those sex clubs this week, if you've been in one of those pornographic films, if, if, if maybe you've been, been a, a woman or a man who's participated in that, can I just say that Jesus loves you? That he doesn't want to shame you? That he'd be willing to be seen with you? And that that's the kind of church that we want to be. We want to be the kind of place where people, they can come and, and with all their baggage and with all their problems. And, and we want to tell you that you are precious. That you are beautiful. That you are priceless. That you are worth more. And men, if you've degraded women, if you've mistreated women, can I tell you that those same disciples who bought into all the lies of their culture and all the religious traditions and, and marveled that Jesus was talking to the woman, that one day they talked with women and that one day they exalted women and that one day they served women and one day they had women in place of leadership and that your life can change too and, and Jesus can fill you with liquid purpose and he can send your life uh, on a different trajectory. So I spent a lot of time on that point. I think that one's really important because we sometimes think that the narrow road is only just narrow, but at the same time it's very broad and that whoever wills may come and there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, that it's, that it's, 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 it's uh, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. It's broader than we may realize. Next thing you could say is that this liquid purpose, this living water, it's deeper than we can dream. It's deeper than we can dream. You notice in verse 9, she says, How can you ask me for a drink? There's all this racial tension here. But what this woman's trying to say is saying, What's your angle? I I know you're playing me. I'm used to guys wanting to buy me drinks because they want something from me. What are you doing asking me for a drink? You trying to mock me? I see you're a Jew. I see you're a rabbi. What's your end game? What's your angle? And you see the sarcasm. I mean, if you look in verse 15, she goes, Oh, sir, won't you give me a drink of this living water so I don't have to keep coming out here in the hot sun to draw from this well? She's jaded. She's cynical. She's uh, just kind of burnt out on life. And maybe it was that fifth divorce for her that did her in, where she just felt over it. Maybe for you it was that unemployment Maybe it was the foreclosure. Maybe like her, it was divorce. It was seeing your parents get divorced. And, and so many people in our society, they see all the divorce that happens and they just think, oh man, that thing's a sham. Let's just live together. Man, that's exactly where she was at. She was jaded. She was cynical. She was disillusioned. But she was dreadfully thirsty. She was dreadfully thirsty. Maybe you're thirsty. Maybe your life feels like a crash landing on Jakku. (laughs) You know, and when you get thirsty enough, Finn can tell you, you'll drink from whatever water source, no matter what else is floating around in there. Yes, that was a certified Star Wars Episode Seven reference. I just don't even care anymore, all right? I'm just throwing it out there. But, But maybe you can relate with this. Dream after dream has become... A nightmare. She'd given up on playing house and maybe you're in that same spot and 
you just think God's out to make things worse. You've already got a bad shtick, and here rolls up Jesus, and it's like, Jesus, what's your angle? What are you trying to take from me? So many people think that God is a taker. But what does Jesus tell her? He says, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked me for a drink. You see, the Bible portrays God not as a taker. The Bible says that God is a giver. You think God's out to take your fun, your freedom, your individuality? You are watching this podcast so that you can find out that God did not come to ruin your life but to renew your life. Not to restrict you, but to refresh you. That Jesus is not out to dam up your life. He wants it to flow with rivers of living water. One of my favorite passages in the scripture is Peter. He's going to stand up in Acts chapter 3, verse 19, and he's going to say this, Repent and be converted or turn to God that your sins might be wiped out and that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. Repent sounds like this big churchy word and you're used to like Southern Baptists with like veins bulging out of their necks. Repent! But when Peter said it, it wasn't a churchy word at all. It was a Greek word that just means change your mind completely. See, God just wants you to change the way you think about everything. And ultimately, it's not that this lady needed like some Uh, behavior modification, that she needed to get her act right. No, Jesus, at the end of the text, he tells her that it's deeper than that. It's not about behavior modification. It's about worship. And that's what it all boils down to. It boils down to worship. And you might be a secular person and you may think, yeah, I don't don't worship. I I don't know what you... Worship problem. What, What are you even saying? No, you do worship. See, worship is just where you place your worth your value. It's where you obtain your worth, where you find your value. You may think you're not a worshiper, but I think David Foster Wallace would have something different to say about that. David Foster Wallace is a celebrated uh, postmodern author, writer. He wrote Infinite Jest, The Pale King. And at a graduation speech at Kenyon University, he said this, There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. This man, he was not a Christian by any stretch. He goes on and he says, an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing, whether it's JC or Allah or Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, and that's where you tap your real meaning in life from, you will never have enough. You will never feel you have enough. It's the truth. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. He continues on and he says, if you worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will ever need more and more power to keep others and the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect and being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. Look, 
he says, the insidious thing about these worships, he says, isn't that they're sinful or, or that they're evil. It's that they're unconscious. There are default settings. They're the kind of worship you just gradually slip into more and more day after day, getting selective about how you measure value without ever being fully aware that's what you're doing. What David Foster Wallace writes reminds me so much of what Jeremiah says, what the Lord says through Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 2. He says, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug for themselves cracked, dry cisterns that can't hold any water. What's the point? God is saying, I am Niagara Falls. And yet you're turning to sex and money and beauty and power and all of these things and things that aren't bad in themselves. But if you build your whole life around them, it's like holding up a broken bucket to a brass sky and expecting it to quench your thirst. It just can't happen. But God, He flows with the life that we're all looking for. I've read interview after interview with CEO, coach, singer-songwriter, person after person, describing how they fulfilled all their dreams, but on the inside they felt like a nightmare. Now I would tell you this morning, as somebody who in a way I'm living my dream, in a way I, I feel like I'm kind of living what I was born to do on this earth, I would tell you, to ignore all those Pinterest posts. I would tell you to ignore the 980,000 Google hits. I would tell you, don't follow your dream. Why? Do I think you should never take risks? Do I think you shouldn't go do exciting things? Of course not. I love all of that. But what I would tell you is this. I'd tell you this. Follow Jesus. He's the king of dreams. Follow Jesus. He's the real thing. He's the dream come true. Delight yourself in Him. He'll give you the desires of your hearts. He's the desire of nations. Make Him your hope. Make Him your living water. You will find refreshment. You will find satisfaction. You will find what you've always been looking for. He'll fill you with purpose. Liquid purpose. That's what you'll find. See, the one place in this world where I've found the law of diminishing returns does not apply is to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It never returns empty. Every time I really think on it, every time I reflect on Jesus, His cross, and His resurrection, and what it implies, I feel deeply, richly satisfied. And it's not like meditation. Because I know people think, oh, meditation, that'll bring me satisfaction, that'll bring me peace, that'll bring me this, this tranquility. But think about what words are used in meditation. Words like achieve, attain, reach. It's, it's all this is out there, this nebulous future tense. But what is the gospel? It's all past tense. It is finished. It's done. It's accomplished. Jesus, you don't have to earn his love. He had a plan to make you right before you ever went wrong. And so you can find this deep assurance, this deep peace in the love of God that you're accepted, beloved, called, chosen, that He knows everything about you and yet He loves you just the same. Now, He goes on and He 
talks about how easy it is to access. You could say that it's easier to access than we expect. He says that a day is coming where you're not going to have to go up to Jerusalem or worship here at this well that Jacob built. You're not going to have to go crawl on your hands and knees to the Ganges River like 20 million people do every year. You won't have to make your pilgrimage to Mecca with the 13 million who do that or the Golden Temple like 50,000 people do. I mean, I've stood there and I've wept as I watched men clothed in black suits, head to toe, black hats, praying through a wall, hoping that God could hear them. That's what religion always does. See, in religion, you go looking for God. But in the gospel, it says Jesus came looking for us. That he went down to Samaria. Religion says achieve. Jesus says receive. Religion says earn. Jesus says enter. What's so great about this is that this woman's day, even though she found peace and satisfaction, it wasn't like it just stopped there and the story ends. No, the story got more invigorating, more exciting than ever before. You see, this living purpose, this liquid purpose, this living water, it's static, but it's not stagnant. Because this woman, she leaves her water pot, and in verse 39, we see she runs back to the village and gets all the men, maybe some of them who'd slept with her, And she leads this whole revival where the whole town comes out to Jesus and it says, many of them believed because of the woman's testimony. (laughs) Because of the words of a woman. They spoke to a woman that day and their, their life was never the same. Her life got a lot more interesting when she met Jesus. The smallest life you can live is a life that's all about you. The most exciting life, the most invigorating life you can live is a life lived for others. And when you're receiving what God has for you, it frees you up to live, to give. I want to ask you this question as we kind of bring this thing to a close. What's your Samaria? What's your Samaria? We can talk about equality. We can talk about tolerance. We can talk about inclusiveness. But a lot of times, we ourselves, we're the hypocrites. We live in a country that's polarized. We live in a country that is divided, that there's full of bigotry, full of animosity, full of mudslinging and and different groups. And, And we can talk about how we want things to be so inclusive and things to be united. But I want to ask you, what's your Samaria? Maybe it's a family member, and any time they call, you click the hold button. You, you, you shut that thing down. Maybe it's just somebody at work that you refuse to have anything to do with. Maybe it literally is a race. Maybe it's a certain ethnic group. <laughs> I've been interested and fascinated by how here in Portland, there's a little bit of a tendency to just hate people from the next town and just like not want anything to do with them or people from the next state. And, and we can have bumper stickers on our cars, Portlandians, saying, God bless the whole world, no exceptions. I'd say God bless the whole metro, no exceptions. A lot of times we can be like, oh yeah, you tell them, Jesse. You tell those atheists. You tell those sexists. You tell this. And I'd say, you got another thing coming. 
Because the red laser of the Holy Spirit, it's on my chest. We all have a Donald Trump hiding in our own hearts. Toupee and everything. See, I'm the problem. I'm the issue. Pride is the problem. And Jesus is the solution. You've got to be willing to go to the marginalized, go to the, the person on the other side of the tracks. That's the only way we can really be followers of Jesus. If you're not willing to be friends with sinners, it's hard to say that you are a friend of Jesus. Because he sat here at this well with this woman of a different race, this person of a different gender, this lady with a scarlet A on her chest. And if we're followers of Jesus, we've got to do the same. Final thing, and I always love to save the best for last, it's that it only flows from one source. It only flows from one source. Verse 25, it says, The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I told you that this river is broader, it's wider, it's more accessible than any other faith, than any other creed. Let whoever wills may come. You don't have to change your culture. You don't have to change the way you dress or the way you look. You can come exactly as you are. Jesus, he's not interested in outward appearances or language or pilgrimages. He's just interested in your heart. But at the same time, it may be more narrow than we're comfortable with. You see, Jesus is the only source of living water. She tries to get religious and she says, I see that you're a prophet. Jesus says, you know what? I'm sorry. I'm not just a prophet. You see, the prophets were messengers. Jesus is the message. The prophets were well diggers. Jesus is the water. Muhammad can't satisfy your thirst. Siddhartha Gautama can't satisfy your thirst. Mother Teresa can't. The Pope can't. The saints can't. I sure as heck can't. Jesus, he's able to quench the thirst of sinners because he himself paid for our sin. He paid the price. He, he, he let free refills come for everybody. In John chapter 19, verse 28 This same John, he's going to go on and he's going to highlight these different times Jesus used this metaphor of water. But he's also going to point out how on the cross, Jesus with his arms stretched wide, he said, I thirst. The one who made seas. The one who made rivers. The one who who came up with H2O. He was willing to put himself in this position where he cried out in total desperation and said, I thirst. Jesus was made empty that we might be made full. Jesus was cosmically thirsty that we might be satisfied. Jesus became an outcast that we might be called in. He was forsaken by man and God so that he might say to you and I, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Jesus bore God's justice so that you and I could have God's grace. He himself being God came and paid our debt, paid the price for us. 
And that's why we can find life. We can find the deepest, richest, truest life in Him because He paid the price to make that possible. And that's why He's the only source. And in this thirsty, aimless city, Jesus is our liquid purpose. And if you just trust in Him, you just own up to the fact that you're thirsty, own up to the fact that, that sex and money and, and pleasure and power and religiosity, that all of this, it's, 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 it's good for a little while, but if you put your hope in it, if you make it your ultimate end, it always leaves you dry. If you come to Jesus, you will never thirst again and your life will begin to flow with liquid purpose. Father, thank You just for this time and just pray again just for anybody watching over the internet, anybody checking out this podcast. We're just doing our best here just to get the word out. We're just well diggers. You're the water. I pray that you'd meet them wherever they're at, at their keyboard or on their smartphone or maybe driving down the freeway, texting and driving when they shouldn't be. I just pray you'd meet them. Say this in Jesus' name. Amen.